Greetings, Northlings, and welcome to episode number four, oh yeah, of Haunted Up North. The horrendously, um, happening, happening podcast dedicated to the telling of real-life paranormal experiences from the north of the UK. I'm your host, Victoria, and I really hope you find yourselves scintillated, scared, and most importantly, entertained by the spectral tales I'm about to tell you today. Merry Christmas, by the way. I hope you're all enjoying the festive season, watching feel-good films, drinking Baileys, wrapping up and listening to Christmas radio. What's your favourite Christmas song? My favourite Christmas song is The Power of Love by Frankie Goes to Hollywood, which some people say is not a Christmas song, like it's the diehard of the music industry, but, you know, laters haters because it's my favourite seasonal song, shall we say. If The Power of Love by Frankie Goes to Hollywood isn't a Christmas song, then I don't know what is. I'm not a practising churchgoer, but the nativity-themed video for The Power of Love moves me to absolute tears. Because whatever you believe, it's a story of unconditional love. Love that is so strong and unconditional, it has the capability of protecting you from none other than the hooded claw. So suck it up. That's what Jesus would have said to anyone who doesn't think The Power of Love is a Christmas song. A second close contender to being my favourite Christmas song is Last Christmas by Wham. I love it. Hugely. Especially the bit where George stares across the candlelit table, which you obviously can't hear in the song, but we all know it's happening. Don't pretend you don't. I love Band-Aids, Do They Know It's Christmas, and Don't Let the Bells End by the Darkness. Also, Step Into Christmas as well by Elton John. Also, Greg Lake's I Believe in Father Christmas. Also, Fairy Tale of New York. But you know what? Just before I start to list every Christmas song ever written, let's just admit that I like them all. All of them. They can all get right in my ears all year round if they want. Did you know that It Must Have Been Love by Roxette, the Swedish musical duo, was originally a Christmas song? The bit where she sings, And it's a hard (laughs) winter's day, was originally Christmas day instead of Winter's Day. In its earliest... (laughs) It's a lot of singing there, sorry. In its earliest incarnation, it was entitled It Must Have Been Love, in brackets, Christmas for the Broken Hearted, when it was released in December 1987. I'm starting to sound a bit like Steve right now. Uh, But when it was released, when it was re-released in 1990 as part of the soundtrack for the film Pretty Woman, they omitted the Christmas and replaced it with Winter. And I wanted to tell you that fact because I love that song and I love that film, just like I love all those other Christmas songs. Always have, always will. You now have my permission to tell that fact at parties. It's one of my favourite party facts and you'll be thanking me when you find yourselves presented with an enthralled audience at, at the party. There's a bit, speaking of Pretty Woman, there's a bit at the end of Pretty Woman where my heart absolutely breaks for one of the characters. It's nothing to do with the romance, it's the scene where the hotel manager, after all the help he's given Vivian, Julia Roberts's character, behind the scenes, that Richard Gere, I presume, has no idea about, uh, but he's chatting with Richard, uh, Richard Gere's character name is Edward, Edward Lewis, and he's chatting with Barney, 
Bernard Thompson, who's the boss of the day-to-day running of the posh hotel, where much of the film takes place. And he's asking Barney, Richard Gere is asking Barney, to return the iconic necklace that Julia Roberts wears with that infamous red dress. I think it's that bit. Or it might be a bit after that. I don't know. Basically, Richard Gere and Julia Roberts are leaving the hotel behind, and Barney's part in their lives is coming to an end. At least for the foreseeable. In my mind, I like to think they go back to that hotel and ask Barney to be Edward's best man at their wedding. Or even better, they ask him to give Vivian away at their wedding. It's just a fantasy of mine. Uh, And Richard Gere says goodbye to Barney, but he can't remember his name. So he's like, thank you, Mr. to Barney, as he's walking away. And Barney does this tear-jerking thing where he reaches into his pocket to give Richard Gere his business card. And he starts off saying, Thompson manager of the... But by that point, Gear's gone off because he's distracted by being a bit sad and in love with Vivian, and he doesn't really pay attention. So Barney finishes with this this sad little sentence that's like, manager, man- manager of the hotel, sir. And his face just falls when he realises Gear isn't really interested. And it's so soul-destroying because this guy was instrumental in keeping Vivian's head above water throughout the whole thing. And Gear has no idea. He's, he's all the gear and no idea. No idea what he's done for his relationship with Julia Roberts. And he's so lovely. And it's a hugely clever little scene that gives you such an intimate insight into Barney's character and reinforces the script writing in such a way that lets you know that no character in that film, Pretty Woman is there just to move the plot along. They're all important, and this guy Barney was important, and the writers are not going to let Barney go without giving him his dues, even if Edward Lewis doesn't. Obviously Vivian does give him a nice big thanks at the end, so that's something. But <laughs> my poor little heart every time I watch that scene. Like I said, it's a genius touch, and spellbinding insight into the life of a hotel manager. And it must be hard sometimes saying goodbye to guests who have made an impression on you. And you've, you know, you're kind of left wondering if you made the same kind of impression on theirs. But oddly, my <laughs> my analysis of the final scenes of Pretty Woman have been a handy little lead-in entirely by accident, honestly, to the subject of Hun number four, which is this one. Who dis? It's this one. It's Hun number four. And I'm incredibly enthused to announce we're going to a hotel ourselves today. A haunted one, in fact. And in order to give context to how I found this particular hotel, I'm very sorry, I'm going to have to talk about Patreon again. Alright Vic, yes we know, we know you've got a Patreon. So over on Vic's Patreon, I recently recorded an episode about Cheeseman Park and the Stanley Hotel, both in Colorado, USA. And the Stanley Hotel, reportedly an extremely haunted hotel, was quite famously the inspiration behind Stephen King's 1977 horror novel, The Shining. I talk about it all in the second half of that episode, so I won't talk about it too much in this one, in case you've either heard it already or don't want me to ruin the surprise, in case you haven't and would like to. But while I was researching the Stanley Hotel, I came across another haunted hotel, Coincidentally, and also rather handily, a a northern British hotel, which was, well is, the Adelphi Hotel in Liverpool, which is an exceedingly famously haunted hotel, and some might say it's actually the most haunted hotel in Britain. What? 
A lot of ghosts and eerie happenings seem to have been experienced here or there at the Adelphi Hotel over the years, and like I said, it's considered by many to be Britain's most haunted hotel. It was actually the subject of an eight-episode 1997 BBC documentary called Hotel. I don't think I remember it. Possibly some listeners might. Let me know if you do remember it, but it followed the general day-to-day running of a hotel with behind-the-scenes footage and things like that. It sounds a bit like the same genre of show that Airport was, if you remember Airport, which was another mid-90s behind-the-scenes TV programme that documented the trials and tribulations of staff working at London Heathrow Airport. I used to watch Airport, Uh, One of my childhood friends used to love Airport because she was obsessed with planes and Top Gun (laughs) and stuff like that. And she's now an air traffic controller, so that's obviously why. She just loves planes. But yeah, Hotel was narrated by Andrew Sachs, but... (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Better known as Manuel off of Faulty Towers. And it even had its own catchphrase, which was... (laughs) Just cook, will ya? I don't know what kind of accent to do that in. But yeah, Just Cook Will Ya became famous around Liverpool after this phrase was bellowed in an episode where two people were having what sounds like quite a heated argument. The whole series, or most of it anyway, is currently, at the time of this recording, available to watch on YouTube. It looks quite entertaining. I think I might watch it and report back, but... Just type Hotel Adelphi BBC into the search bar and it should come up pretty easily in the results thing. The hotel owners weren't very enamoured of it though, the programme, and harshly criticised the BBC over the final edit, which they said misrepresented the hotel and its workers, so please bear that in mind if or when you watch it. So the Adelphi Hotel, its full name is the Britannia Adelphi Hotel, as it's owned and managed by Britannia Hotels. And it's situated in Ranley Place in the centre of Liverpool, Merseyside, England. And it's got a grand total of 402 rooms, three restaurants and six floors. It was opened in 1914, is a designated Grade 2 listed building and is actually the third hotel built on the site upon which it currently stands. The very first hotel that was built there dates back to 1826 and it was erected... 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 (laughs) for the hotelier James Radley on the site of the former Ranley Gardens, which was the first open space for pubic... (laughs) No, <laughs> sorry, I've ri- <laughs> I've written pubic rec- <laughs> pubic recreation here. I've I've of course meant public recreation, the first open space for public recreation. Certainly hope there wasn't any pubic recreation going on in Ranley Gardens back then. Uh, so yeah, the first open space for public recreation <laughs> in Liverpool. And these gardens, pubic gardens, were constructed in 1722 and modelled on Ranley Gardens in Chelsea, London. Both are no longer there though, sadly. This hotel... This first one, the one that was built in 1826, was replaced by another in 1876, which was then bought by the Midland Railway, which became one of the largest railway companies in Britain. So it was bought and renamed the Midland Adelphi. 
Between 1911 and 1914, 1914, if you remember, is when the current Adelphi Hotel originally opened, it was replaced with the present building and, at the time of its opening, was widely considered the most luxurious hotel outside of London. Fancy. So it's gone from being the most luxurious hotel to the most haunted one. During its heyday, the Adelphi Hotel provided hospitality to quite a lot of famous and wealthy guests including, I'm going to read all these people out in the accents I think they had or have, <laughs> Franklin, Franklin D. Roosevelt, Winston Churchill, Frank Sinatra, Laurel and Hardy, Stan Laurel's from Cumbria, and Oliver Hardy's from Georgia, so you can see why I didn't even attempt that one, Judy Garland, Bob Dylan, <laughs> and Roy Rogers. What an offensive list of accents. I don't mean that those people had offensive accents, I just think my version of their accents is offensive. Bit of trivia, but it's actually important trivia, so it's not a bit of trivia. It's relevant trivia. The Sefton suite of the Adelphi Hotel is an exact replica of the RMS Titanic's first-class smoking lounge in commemoration of the affluent guests who used to stay there in the early 20th century before they embarked on their big boaty journeys to North America. The Titanic was registered in Liverpool, but never visited the port, but the Titanic in fact did have quite strong routes connected to the city, as its managing company White Star Line had its head office in James Street, Liverpool, and many of her key officers and crew lived in Merseyside or had originally sailed from Liverpool for White Star. It's also worth mentioning that construction for the present Adelphi was actually going on during the year the Titanic sunk, which was 1912. So although it was completed in 1914, work on the hotel actually began in 1911, which is possibly why there's a homage to it inside, the Titanic I mean, alongside the aforementioned connections as well. So there's lots of history going on here on the site of the Adelphi Hotel. It's teeming with the past. Far beyond the confines of the current building's hundred year or so old walls. Walls. And the hotel's abundance of strange noises and sightings have made the hotel an extremely popular supernatural attraction for ghost hunters and paranormal enthusiasts from all around the world. Been around the world and I, I, I can Find a more haunted hotel in the UK. Apparently, supernatural investigator and author Tom Slemon is the person responsible for first naming the Adelphi as the UK's most haunted hotel, and he even claims he has seen, with his own eyes, some of its supernatural residents himself. He says, with his own words from his own face, The Adelphi, in my humble opinion, is the most haunted hotel in the UK. Yeah. And some incredibly strange incidents have gone on in both the present Adelphi and the one that stood there before it in Victorian times. I often gave... I'm, I'm gonna stop with the reverb now and move on to ghost noises. I often gave talks at the Hotel Sefton Suite and was unaware that this suite is an exact copy of the Titanic's first-class smoking lounge, built by the same craftsmen hired by the White Star Line. Alright, oh, so it's made by the same people as well. Wow. During one talk, there was standing room only, 
and I, and many other people, saw three men standing at the far end of the room who were dressed as naval officers with white caps and dark jackets with all the branding. The middle officer, who looked about 60, had a white beard and stood about 5 feet 7 or 8, and the trio were there one moment, then gone the next, and there were gasps of shock when this trinity of ghosts vanished. I was later told by a member of staff that the ghosts were those of Captain Edward Smith of the Titanic and two unidentified officers. So we're straight into it with the ghost there. That was quite a mega thing to witness, wasn't it? Presuming it was witnessed. I've no reason to doubt anyone who said they saw the three supposedly Titanic spirit sailor men, but I wonder why they'd haunt a replica of a room they'd been in, but actually hadn't been in. Because it was an entirely different building and room, wasn't it? Although I guess one could argue it's just part of the whole unexplained nature of hauntings in general. No one really knows what the nature of a ghostly spirit really is, so you can't really apply logic and reason to every single scenario or situation within which they're observed. I suppose. Aside from ghostly sea captains appearing at his talks, Tom Slemon also reports of other types of supernatural phenomena that have taken place inside the Adelphi Hotel. The ghost of Raymond Brown, a 15-year-old page boy who died after becoming trapped in the baggage room lift of the hotel in August 1961, has been spotted wearing his gleaming cap and uniform, even bending down to pick up guest luggage and carry it off to various rooms before vanishing into thin air. An unidentified whistler is said to breathe down the necks of unfortunate guests, and sometimes taps them on the shoulder as they travel in the hotel lift. A man staff have named George, who sports a pencil-thin moustache and tuxedo, apparently committed suicide at the Adelphi sometime in the 1930s. George is said to call to members of the public from the same particular window every time he manifests on the Brownlow hillside of the building, and he's also been known to awaken guests by standing by their bedside table while they sleep. In other ghost news, the spirit of a female pickpocket rifles through guest belongings in the early hours of the morning, always disappearing before their eyes when challenged about her posthumous criminal activity. A pair of twin sisters, named Lindsay and Louise Scott, were left petrified after finding and hearing creepy handprints and noises during a stay at the Adelphi Hotel. Lindsay and Louise are members of an urban explorer and paranormal investigative group, and, along with their friends, Rosie and Phoebe, shared a night together at the hotel with the intention and hope of capturing the property's paranormal activity on camera. In one particular video, the investigators can be seen in a dark and empty function room, asking any presences who might be listening to make a loud noise before a sudden, distant banging can be heard somewhere off camera. In other footage, handprints are noticed on a corridor mirror, and what seems to be a chalky smeared handprint on a bedroom wall close to the ceiling in one of their rooms. Another ghost hunting outfit, Danny Dilmore and his friend Connor, also spent a night recording paranormal oddities inside the hotel. There's a picture of Danny Dilmore in the Liverpool Echo, and I could tell you he looks terrified. He's sort of praying as well, which means he must be extra scared. But yeah, Danny Dilmore, with his own words from his own face, said, I always wanted to do a ghost hunt in a hotel. Me too, Danny. And the Adelphi seemed the perfect choice. 
The third floor is described as the scariest. We went up and down corridors and spoke to other guests. We didn't physically see anything, but I did feel that something was watching us. The most frightening thing of all was the heat in the room. It was ridiculously hot and there was a constantly running tap. I was woken up at 1am because the room was so warm. It felt like an oven. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> this 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 sound this sounds like someone's disgruntled review on TripAdvisor. Anyway, the hotel itself is quite old and it was just eerie in there. I was really spooked and glad to get out of there. Well, it sounds far too hot for you, Danny, so you do right to leave. Only joking, Danny. Because uh, he's right, Danny's right. The third floor that he mentions during his account of his Adelphi stay is, in fact, widely believed to be the most active in terms of paranormal behaviour because guests have reported feelings of being watched as well as suddenly feeling nauseous upon entering the floor and some have heard a growling noise as well as the disembodied sound of an angry man. It was probably Elton John. That's what I think, anyway. Winston Churchill! A ghost-hunting couple have another story to tell about the Adelphi after they were left shocked in the wake of an attempt to communicate with spirits, during which the naughty manifests, instead of saying hello, swore at them instead. How rude. Husband and wife, Lee and Lindsay Steer, co-creators of the Ghosts of Britain Facebook page, stayed at the hotel during the summer of this year, which is 2021, and said that after booking room number 105, a room apparently quite infamous for its paranormal activity, they got to good ghost-busting work by exploring the floors and corridors. Upon attempting contact with the spectral plane via means of... um... um a machine... They heard a voice say, you bastard, in response to their greeting. Other phantasmic events surrounding their visit to the Adelphi included lifts moving and opening entirely of their own accord, whistling and scratching sounds, temperatures in their room changing by 10 degrees in a matter of seconds, the door to their bedroom entryway repeatedly opening by itself when it had been closed only moments before, and the image of what the steers believed to be a still of two tiny children was captured during a Ghosts of Britain live Facebook stream. A normal couple, as in a couple unrelated to urban exploring and paranormal investigative groups, a normal couple, who were also briefly residents at the hotel, Wayne Mockler and Rose Eckerley, said they were left shaken when something quite terrifying happened in, again, the lift. Mr. Mockler says, We went inside the lift and the door shut, almost trapping my partner's hand while we got in. At that point, the lift moved by itself to the next floor, which our room was on. My partner was very shaken and scared at this. We jumped out when the lift stopped with a massive bang on the next floor. The lift then opened and stood open for a few minutes while I took two pictures. Mr. Mockler claimed, that after the pictures were developed, there was a strange mist visible inside the lift. I've had a look at this picture. I'll, of course, upload it to social media, but I can't really see anything, to be honest. It, it just seems to be an empty lift with a bit of surface reflection going on. But let me know what you think. I'm quite possibly missing something that everyone else can see and I can't, which quite often <laughs> happens with me. 
it starts to get really good, doesn't it, when you begin talking about photographs with potential ghosts inside them. So it's nice that I've got another tale about potential paranormal pictures to share with you. Amanda Ruddick and Maria Elliott from a lower Clackmanand... <laughs> Clackmanandshire... Clackmanandshire... <laughs> a lower Clackmanandshire, Scotland, were visiting the Adelphi during pre-pandemic era when they caught the incredibly creepy image of a girl in a white nightie peering at them through a window. It was captured during a video the pair were making as they explored various sections of the building, and the figure was only discovered when they looked back at the footage and saw the scary outline of a female with long dark hair wearing a white gown and sinisterly staring at them through the window of an unused stairwell that had been blocked off from guests. We didn't notice anything at the time, Maria said. It was only when we got back to the room and watched the video that we saw it appear in a door window. It spooked us out big time. There were a lot of reviews on TripAdvisor describing ghost figures with long curly hair and a long white dress like a nightie. An actual spokesperson of Britannia Hotels, if you'll remember from just a few minutes ago, they're the company who own the Adelphi Hotel. An actual spokesperson confirms that there have been many, many reports of ghosts there, uh, not just from residents, but from members of staff as well. It wouldn't surprise me. Uh, this is the spokesperson speaking now, through me, their conduit. It wouldn't surprise me if it was all true. Over the years, a few members of staff have reported seeing a grey lady in a Victorian-style dress in the basement. I'd, I'd just like to add here, and I've said this before in other episodes, that Queen... <laughs> this is so nerdy. Uh, Queen Victoria died in 1901, which was over a decade before the current hotel was built. So it might be an Edwardian outfit by this point, and not a Victorian one. Unless it's a ghost from one of the previous hotels that was built there before. So yeah, it's probably just an old style dress. We've also had reports of somebody hanging out of a window in the Crosby room, and when everybody went to check it, the window was locked. I've not personally seen anything, but it is the oldest hotel in Liverpool, so I wouldn't be at all surprised. Wow! A feast of ghosts at the Adelphi Hotel. Uh, Tom Slemons, the man who saw the salty sea dog ghosts, has some other hotels too on his most haunted hospitality hotspots list, namely hotels in and around that part of the country. I'll talk about those as well if you like. The Hartford Hall Hotel in Northwich is haunted by the ghost of a very solid-looking nun. She's been seen on many occasions by guests and staff alike, as, at one point, many, many years ago, the hotel was once a convent, or some form of it was anyway, and it's thought this nun is the spirit of a holy lady who was bricked up alive in the cellar of a nearby abbey. Phantom hymn singers have also been heard in the small hours of the morning around the hotel grounds. The Crown Plaza Liverpool Hotel at John Lennon Airport is said to be haunted by several ghosts, one of which is apparently that of aviator Thomas Campbell Black, who tragically died in a plane crash while getting ready to take off at the Old Speak Airport in September 1936. His ghost has been spotted in and around the Crown Plaza, along with the apparition of a cavalier who some think may have a connection to nearby Speak Hall. 
In 2014, a guest witnessed this cavalier standing in the car park and presumed he was somebody going to a fancy dress convention or reenactment until the figure suddenly melted away and vanished. The Malmaison Hotel is a 16th century castle situated along the coastline just off Wirral's Leoso Road. I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce it, sorry. Hopefully it is, fingers crossed. It's reportedly haunted by the ghost of someone crying, presumed to be an ex-prisoner of the castle. Many guests have also spoken of seeing a semi-transparent, pale-faced woman in white standing in the corner of their room at night, smiling and sometimes humming an unidentifiable tune. Ugh, don't you just hate that? But don't you just love all the ghosts we've learned about today? The ghost girl in the nighty and the man calling from a window are my favourite ones, I reckon. I can just see the window man in, in my weird mind as some sort of scene from a found footage style film where the camera shoots past a figure in a window, then hastily tries to zoom in on an indistinct figure they can't quite see before it disappears from shot. I'm not sure if I'm explaining that idea very well, but yeah, they're the ones I find the scariest. Apart from perhaps the person who taps guests on shoulders in the lifts. The lifts seem to have a great deal of phenomena attached to them, don't they? Perhaps it's something to do with the spirits being able to harness the electricity in there or something. Or maybe it's something to do with Raymond, the boy who died in the baggage room lift. I'll add Lindsay and Louise's Exploring the UK's Most Haunted Hotel video to our very scary VT playlist, and the photographs of Ghosts of Britain's shining style ghost girls, as well as the white nighty window apparition to our social media pages. Were there any others? Oh yeah, The Lift Interior by Wayne and Rose. Uh, another good name for an album. The Lift Interior by Wayne and Rose. <laughs> Haunted hotels is another theme I want to revisit. Like I said, if you do fancy a little bit more hotel action, there's a little bit about the Stanley Hotel on Patreon, but I'll most definitely come back to this theme another time. That's kind of it for the time being. Let's get back to the Christmasing and the watching, drinking, rapping and listening. I've been doing all four of those things, in particular rapping. Not just wrapping up warm about the wintry streets of Howarth, but wrapping up presents as well, which I get very excited about doing every year until the millionth moment when I can't find the end of the sellotape and I begin to wish rather aggressively that I was doing anything but. However, it's alright, because Christmas is ace. In my opinion, anyway. I love fairy lights, being cold, but not really cold, because it's not like I don't have a nice warm house to go back to. You know, very lucky. Uh, hearing bells and being in pubs, especially the haunted Howarth ones, because the main street of Howarth becomes incredibly Dickensian at this time of year. It's a fab place to visit during the run-up to Christmas, so if you have time and you fancy it, come visit. However, I'm sure where you all live is very nice at Christmas time as well. It doesn't really matter where you are, does it? As long as you're happy and enjoying yourselves. Speaking of dickensian necessities. Keep a little ear out over the festive slash New Year period as I'll be telling a rather scary Victorian ghost story for you to snuggle down to sleep with as you settle in for the night. 
I recently read The Authentic Narrative of the Ghost of a Hand by Sheridan Le Fanu over on Patreon in response to something I talked about in the last Hun episode, which was Hun number three entitled Childhood Ghosts. I hope you've had a chance to listen to it. It's got my mum on, talking about all her supernatural experiences in our various family homes and beyond. The second part to that episode is over on Patreon as well. It's called Childhood Ghosts Part 2, <laughs> and this time it's my dad who's talking about his own paranormal encounters as well. Both are pretty good episodes, but if you like the first half and want to hear more, sign up for our £4 a month Dark Disturbances Patreon tier, which will give you exclusive access to the very frightening Haunted Up North, Haunted Some More feed. The address is www.patreon.com slash hauntedupnorth, but you know, no pressure baby cakes, you do you. Live, laugh, love. Bish, bash, bosh. Don't forget, by the way, to please send me all your terrifying doorstep ghosts. Remember, these don't have to be from anywhere particular other than your own backyard, wherever in the world you live. And I don't mean they have to be ghosts from your literal backyard, it's just a metaphor. I'd love to hear your real-life hauntings from everywhere, whether they're in your literal backyard, (laughs) in your house, your friend's house, your village, town, city, or local tourist attraction. Whatever they are, wherever they're from, I want to know about them. So send them to me at hauntedupnorth at gmail.com for a chance to hear them read out on the show. I'm going to tiptoe off now like a furtive cartoon villain. Thanks for listening everyone and for letting us inject a bit of northern soul into your day. I hope you found these ghosts to be good ones and that you were suitably entertained by them. Long live the north and all who haunt her and may her power forever compel you to never presume that The Power of Love by Frankie Goes to Hollywood isn't a Christmas song. Because it is. See you later. Bye. It was probably Elton John. That's what I think anyway.